on Pacifica Radio in San Francisco. This is Flashpoints. I'm Dennis Bernstein. Today on the show, renegade Israel bombs Syria in a widening war in the Middle East. Meanwhile, uh, Palestine, in Palestine, resistance is rising. And also, people rising up all over this country, over the uh, country's right and women's right to abort. That's what they support. All this and more coming up straight ahead on Flashpoints. Stay tuned. And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Bernstein. I think my tongue is tied in the back of my mouth, but we are happy to have you along today as we are every weekday from 5 to 6. We broadcast over the Pacifica Radio Network. Uh, and uh, we're going to start uh, where we left off last week, and that's in uh, the Middle East where there is a widening war. Israel has bombed Syria uh, now, and there seems to be major escalation. Meanwhile, uh, the expanding uh, vigilante movement in the uh, uh, East Jerusalem, West Bank, uh, is looking uh, more and more deadly, and Palestinians are rising to resist. The violence is extraordinary. Uh, joining us to talk about it is uh, a good friend of ours, Dick Becker. He's Dick Becker. He is a co-founder of uh, International Answer Coalition, and uh, he knows a great deal about the Middle East, has been writing about it uh, for years, as he has uh, recently. Dick, welcome back uh, to Flashpoints. Uh, why don't you start uh, with sort of overview? This is, um, this is uh, an expanded war now. It really does seem it's, it's going from uh, uh, bombing Gaza to Lebanon. We don't know uh, where the bombs are coming back from Lebanon. It's not been confirmed yet, uh, but there's resistance there. Uh, there's bombings, as I said, in Syria. Well, what does it look like? Uh, where are we heading here? I know there's a great deal of Palestinian resistance that we're not hearing about in the U.S., yeah, I, I think you're. I think that's exactly right, Dennis. And thanks for the invitation. Um, I, you can see that uh, the bombing of Syria is actually stepping up, as far as I can tell. Uh, in the last year, it's reported that 44 people in Syria were killed and 55 wounded in airstrikes. But I think the real numbers are probably much higher than that. And uh, and uh, we have this kind of attacks that go on, and at the same time, you know. Syria remains a, a very much a divided country. Uh, it's, it's broken up the government. The central government uh, controls kind of what has been key areas of the country or most key areas of the country. But it's very divided. And in fact, the, uh, the, the U.S. frequently launches uh, bombing attacks in the eastern part of Syria where it controls 90 percent of Syria's oil. Uh, I mean, this is a country that is not a big oil exporter, but was, was self-sufficient in oil. So you have that going on, and you have these uh, these attacks going on with the U.S. promising more bombing in eastern Syria. We have the almost daily attacks that are going on across the border. Of course, because of Israel's uh, military superiority, uh, particularly in regards to uh, to air and air defense and so forth, um, you know, the uh, and and its military superiority uh, overall, uh, which may be slipping away, but 
Uh, that means that the anyone who re, who responds to these attacks, like Syria responding to these attacks, uh, you know, ha, that's a very a weighty decision because the consequences of that can be uh, can be quite extreme. But you can see that on all fronts uh, in in the area that really there's a, a kind of war going on uh, at some level, and we have, of course, the central uh, central focus has been on what's going on in the West Bank and East Jerusalem, where the fascists in the Israeli government, and I'm not using the term hyperbolically or loosely, these are real fascists, have been given control over the police forces uh, and the occupation forces. Uh, And I'm speaking particularly of Itamar Ben-Gavir, who's now called the National Security Minister. That was a, a, a position that didn't exist before, created for him, and gives him control over the police. Uh, and Smotrich, who is now being called, who's from the Religious Zionist Party, they're both Kahanists, uh, followers of Mayor, Mayor Hakani, Kahani, and um, he's being called the unofficial governor of the West Bank. So these are the, the extreme uh, forces, the vigilantes that you mentioned before, uh, who, are really, who are really fascist uh, and conduct these pogroms and these uh, these vigilante attacks on Palestinians all over the place. But now they've been given the uh, the official go ahead from the state. And uh, and you have uh, you have Ben Gavir, the national security minister, who is says he's going to rec- he's going to recruit a whole new group called the National Guard, mainly to use against Palestinians inside the 48 borders of Israel. If you hear what he's saying. And the, comprised of, of people from already existing fascist groups like the Hilltop Youth and the La Familia uh, soccer fans who uh, like to chant death to the Arabs whenever there's an Arab player uh, who's on the field, on, on the pitch in uh, soccer matches. So it's very, very intense and it's, it's heating up and it's, it's, it's intensifying. There's no question. Now, uh, my understanding was there was a sort of a march uh, to restore one of the illegal um, settlements in the West Bank. That that march is going was going on today, or uh, what are those? What is what is the actual confrontations on the ground look like now, both in the West Bank and East Jerusalem? Because things are more tense than they have been, uh, you know, since two thousand and six. Yeah, <clears throat> well, and that is the, uh, you know, there's the key part of Netanyahu's government. I don't think Netanyahu, it might not be actually right to call it Netanyahu's government anymore. It might be uh, the Ben Gavir Smotrich government because they have the ability to bring down that government at any moment uh, with, a, right. with a vote. And so, and so you have, they are really leading the way. They're really leading what's going on. And Netanyahu is, you know, trying to avoid prosecution and stay in power and carry out. And he's, he's uh, of course, extremely right-wing himself. But they're doing this. And so they, they're going out in the places that have been declared illegal outposts. And that usually is a temporary designation. And they usually come back or sometimes it takes years to come back. But out of the 120 members of the Knesset, the parliament in Israel, 20 members of Knesset uh, uh, went to and uh, were, were uh, shown to be at this 
the settlement that had been declared to be an illegal settlement, the so-called outpost that can be built, you know, into a place that's housing thousands more settlers. There's already somewhere like 650 or 700,000 Israeli settlers in the West Bank and, and East Jerusalem. Uh, but if they feel uh, completely emboldened to go do this kind of thing. And at the same time, you have a rising resistance that's going on uh, among the Palestinians in the West Bank and in Gaza. People are fighting. So, um, you know, that's that's the reality. And the the uh, it's the vigilant. It's, a, it's a, become a vigilante state. And that's not an exaggeration either. It's become a kind of KKK like formations that are roaming around, rampaging, attacking, killing, wounding, destroying. Uh, but now they have the imprimatur of the government itself. It is unusual because there is some resistance and uh, some members of the Jewish community actually have been hurt in the latest uh, sort of, shall we say, back and forth. But the it's hard to explain. You know this, Dick. This is a real struggle. It's hard to tell this story to the world when it is constantly daily being flipped by the corporate media. I mean, we're talking about one of the most censored stories of our time. Um, so I, help us do it like compare and contrast. You, you've got the U.S. media. You, you, what you hear is when it's a Palestinian fighting back, they're a militant or a terrorist. Uh, and then it's uh, a member of Israel or an Israeli citizen when uh, when somebody in Israel is hurt. Talk about the. I mean, it is in. It is literally impossible to flip this script against this censorship. Yeah, I mean, most of the world doesn't go for it. Most of the world uh, is not sympathetic to uh, to what Israel is doing. And is sympathetic to, I, I would say, the great majority of people who know anything about it are sympathetic to the Palestinian side. But here, as you say, it's just, it's, it's unbelievable. As, the, as Israel goes further and further to the right with these, like, really fascist characters running uh, the state apparatus to a large degree and the repression... Uh, you have, like, I think it was just today or, or a couple of days ago, but I think it was today that the governor of New Mexico signed the definition of anti-Semitism, the so-called International Declaration, uh, that basically says to criticize the state of Israel is to be anti-Semitic. That's what it basically says. And to, to criticize Zionism is the same as criticizing Judaism. And so you have, I mean, it's an absurd situation. It's like theater of the absurd. On the one hand, Israel goes more and more in this extreme right-wing direction. The violence that's perpetrated against the Palestinians is is unchecked and is intensifying, and yet in the United States, the main thing has to be the main the main agenda we're supposed to uh, go for is that Israel must be protected from criticism. I mean, it's it's really uh, outrageous and amazing uh, that that's what's happening. But that is what's happening because the the reality I think is that there has to be kind of a wall built that a wall of, of, uh, of fantasy and of illusion about what's going on there. And no one can challenge it. No one can, if, if you challenge it in any way, 
the wall will break and fall apart. So the wall has to be constantly reinforced with more and more resolutions, more and more laws, uh, more and more declarations by governors and so forth, uh, that it's illegal, it's out of the question. You cannot criticize Israel at all. And I, I mean, we can just imagine it with any other in, in, with any other set of circumstances, like, uh, and and just see how absurd this really is. Well, I'm talking about absurd. I was listening to a report from MSNBC with Ralph Sam- Sanchez, who's on the ground. I guess he's in Tel Aviv. He's in Israel, uh, and he's saying one of the ways that. And this is almost laughable, but it's tragic. One of the ways that the Israelis are now cracking down is they're limiting the travel of Palestinians from Gaza. Limiting the travel. Uh, It is a fact that there are families that live in the Gaza Strip that haven't been able to see their relatives in the West Bank for 20 years because there's no, it's only Jewish-only roads between, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, Gaza and the West Bank. And it's like, you know, you might as well try and go to uh, the North Pole. Yeah. It, 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 it's a, it's amazing. It's a lockdown. It's a it's an open air prison of over two million people. Uh, essentially, a lockdown open air prison. Gaza is right. Yeah, absolutely. It absolutely is, is what the situation is there, and that, and and this is like the they're trying to think of ways. And I'm not I'm not making any of this up. They're trying to think of ways to punish the Palestinians more. They inflict greater pain on them. And like for instance, uh, the Itamar Ben Gavir, who's the uh, security minister, he's in charge of the prisons now. So they're trying to make life as miserable as possible for the Palestinian prisoners. There's 4,700 Palestinian prisoners in Israeli prisons. All of them held illegally. It's illegal under international law to transport the uh, residents of an occupied territory into the in, into the, in, inside the occupying or the colonizing country. There's, of course, no Israelis and Palestinian prisoners. And if you only knew that one fact, you'd know uh, this is an apartheid government, an apartheid regime, and, and who the oppressor and who the oppressed are in this. But he's trying to make... He, ben Gavir is, is trying to punish the people in prison more. They're, they're all held illegally, as I said. Uh, a thousand of them, a thousand of the prisoners are held without, this is the largest number in, in decades, uh, are held without any charges on administrative detention. And you, so you have that going on. You have the additional punishment of Gaza that's going on. And, of course, there is a purpose for this. And, and, and I think it has to be understood what the purpose is. It's to make life so difficult. So to, uh, to raise the level of terror in many areas to such a degree that the Palestinians will leave, or at least many of them will leave. That's the aim, and there's, and they haven't made any secret about this. The the, the fascist elements in the government have openly stated, "You are here by mistake," as Smotrich said uh, to a couple of years ago to a Palestinian uh, who was in the Knesset in the uh, Israeli Parliament. You're here by mistake because Ben-Gurion, the first prime minister of Israel, didn't finish the job. Uh, and uh, you have the other one, Ben-Gavir, saying to them, I'm your landlord. Remember that. I'm your landlord. Anytime I want to evict you, I can evict you. And that's what he wants to do. That's what they both want to do. 
You're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. We're speaking with Dick Becker of Answer. Uh, Dick is a, an expert on the Middle East and uh, writes regularly about uh, what's been going on on the ground there. Um, Dick, talk a little bit more about Israel, the democracy. That's the other phrase that uh, is a knee-jerk phrase that comes out of every mouth. Not like I'm, you know... Uh, defending Saudi Arabia or all the dictatorships uh, in the Middle East supported by the United States government. But uh, Israel's number one uh, recipient of U.S. aid, Uh, it's called the only democracy in the Middle East. It reminds me of Gene Kirkpatrick uh, referring to South Africa as a partial democracy. It was a democracy for white people. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's that. And I was going to say something along the same line that uh, they had elections for white people. And, uh, you know, you could go to prison there if you if you sided with the liberation movement. But it was it was it it was that kind of a democracy, so-called. And now we have another one. You know, the population between Gaza, West Bank, East Jerusalem, 1948, Israel, uh, it's, a, it's, it's probably roughly the same. Maybe the Palestinian population is a little bit larger, but they're very divided. Uh, and the, those in the, obviously the deprivation of rights of the people in Gaza, as you said, an open air prison, huge open air prison. In the West Bank, the people, uh, the Palestinian people, live under emergency military regulations that were copied wholesale from the British military regulations when the British were the colonizer, and they were put into the, they became the, the, uh, the legal uh, framework inside of, uh, inside of the West Bank. And meanwhile, the settlers, the 650 or 700,000 settlers, they live under uh, uh, Israeli civilian law, civil law, uh, for criminal and for civil cases. 99.4% of all cases of Palestinians in the la- last count uh, who uh, are charged with anything in the West Bank, 99.4% are found guilty. It's a complete kangaroo court. Uh, uh, there can be secret evidence. They don't have to show the, the defendants anything. They just tell the judges, the prosecutors, the military prosecutors tell the judges this is what's going on and that's why they have to be sent to prison and off they go to prison. So you have this, uh, it's an apartheid system. I mean, so even groups that are very moderate here, Amnesty International, uh, Human Rights Watch, Betzalem, which is a, an Israeli organization, and more have all said, yeah, it's, it's an apartheid system. And so we now have to defend that apartheid system, uh, you know, according to these laws and decrees and so forth that are coming down to illegally uh, uh, deny people the right right to freedom of speech when it comes to any kind of criticism of the state of Israel. Is it true that uh, sort of some of the leaders of the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa, Bishop, uh, uh, the late Nobel laureate uh, Bishop Desmond Tutu, did in fact, is this just myth, or did he uh, make some kind of comparison in which he felt that those uh, Palestinians, uh, the conditions Palestinians were facing were even worse than what he faced in South Africa? Is that a, a, an overstatement or an exaggeration? He, he doesn't seem very popular among the uh, Israeli leadership. 
Yeah, and there's a number. Um, in the book that I did, which is called Palestine, Israel, and the U.S. Empire, I quoted the uh, the editor of the Sunday Herald, who had lived through, who was, uh, 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 had lived through the apartheid period, and he went and he visited the West Bank, and his quote was, uh, you know, what we lived under was terrible, and this is pretty close to it. This, is, but what we see here is even more terrible. It's more it. It's terrible, it's terrible, it's terrible. We, we couldn't believe the conditions. Today, probably outside of the Middle East, the strongest uh, solidarity movement in the world is in South Africa uh, with the Palestinians. It's called, and they have a website called Africa for Palestine, with the four being the number four. People can look that up and see what they say. See what the, what the people who live through that apartheid say about this apartheid. It's pretty damning and pretty revealing. Do you see, is it your understanding or your feeling, your sense that uh, um, people are punished in this country for taking on the Israelis directly, college uh, professors, students? What's your understanding of the uh, resistance to the boycott divestment movement, which seems to be growing? It's sort of like a movement modeled on the divestment uh, movement in South Africa. So how, how is that play? Out. And how are people, our students, or teachers punished for supporting that at the intellectual level? You know, the way they are, there's no question about that. Uh, many people have lost their jobs. Particularly, these are particularly in academic circles. Uh, they, they've lost jobs. Um, the, the, a really, really insidious, vicious campaign. There's one that's called Canary Mission. And I'm familiar with Canary Mission, and the <clears throat> uh, they try to ruin people's lives. Uh, that's their aim, and they particularly focus or focus a great deal on student activists uh, in college. I mean, <clears throat> there was one who was just here a few minutes ago in the in our office, and in 2018 they went after him in a big way. And they but they've gone after many people. They they have a lot of money. They do a lot of research. They're basically, you know, if people know what the term doxing means, is where you, you know, where, where people go after other people by publishing their address and their uh, telephone number and, you know, their email and, and so on and so forth. Uh, and to try, you know, there's that. But this is a kind of academic form of that where the idea is to slander and the, 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 they really, really lie they slander people, uh, and they and they try to prevent them from uh, from becoming employed, basically, in the fields that they've studied in or worked in, or or so forth. I mean, it's it's and and there's all kinds of. It's not just the Canary Mission, but there's other organizations that also participate in this. There's the ADL, which uh, tries to destroy people's reputation. I I think we should call it the you know the Association for the for uh, dismissing anyone who criticizes the state of Israel. <laughs> yeah. and they, but, but this goes on, it goes on all the time. And I think a lot of people have been very courageous in standing up to them and said, you know, we're not going to be, we're not going to be bullied like this. We're not going to be shut up and we're not going to be shut down. Were you surprised to see the 
the way in which uh, essentially the governor, the liberal progressive governor, has folded, undermined, and sort of the powers that be have to say of San Francisco and the Bay Area and California have made it impossible for there to be a real effective ethnic studies program that includes the plight and the nature and the life and the history of Palestinians and Palestine and and Arab Americans in a a fair way. Uh, It's an interesting uh, sort of parallel structure uh, supporting the destruction with incredible amounts of uh, military support and then closing down the ability to understand who the folks are that we're um, warring against, thus trying to counteract the censorship. Yeah, you know, I think that they ha- they do this because anybody who looks at this situation in any kind of an objective way will understand what's really going on here and that this is this is uh that Israel uh is a state, it's an apartheid state. It's really an extension of the U.S. military power. I mean, it's, it's, it's very closely allied with the U.S. and it has played an important role over the, the last, uh, especially the last 60 years in, uh, in, in, in uh, taking down governments or very much damaging them who weren't marching to the U.S. to Washington's uh, uh, beat. And, you know, and, and that was the 67 war against the more radical regimes in the, in the Arab world, uh, the support for South Africa, the support for the Guatemalan uh, genocide. I mean, there, there's a lot that, that uh, Israel has done and, and uh, done for, for the U.S. And so they, they continue uh, to, along this path. And, and I think that, you know, it's not just the lobby inside the U.S. or the lobbying organizations uh, that shut people down. It's also that that's to protect the state of Israel. And, and really, the U.S. is the great protector of the state of Israel. Uh, if it, Otherwise, Israel would be completely isolated in the world. And so in order to prevent that from happening, you have this protection in order to rally U.S. public opinion uh, behind the state of Israel. You have these kind of campaigns, this extremely distorted media coverage. But, you know, the reality is when even with all of that, if people actually look, even for a moment, objectively at the situation, you can see that it's the Palestinians who are fighting for self-determination and for liberation and are fighting against a system that uh, is is a cruel apartheid system. When, how would you respond how did you respond to the story uh the way it was portrayed the israelis had to go in with mas forte into the 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 third holiest place uh in islam because the people inside were stockpiling fireworks and rocks and they had no choice yeah I mean, it's it's really something. That's a violation of uh, all kinds of agreements that involve uh, Jordan and United Nations and international law. And um, so they they did this. And, you know, uh, for two nights, they at least two nights, they waged these big attacks on people inside the mosque to force them out of the mosque. 
And then, and, and this is the, my understanding of what happened yesterday. Uh, you know, it's a, a conjuncture this year of Ramadan and Passover and Easter. They all kind of came together. But yesterday, instead of trying to force the Palestinians who were worshiping inside Al-Aqsa out, they barricaded them in. And then they brought uh, hundreds and hundreds of, I think something like 1,500 in groups and small groups uh, is these Israeli settlers, the people who are who are with Ben Gavir and Smartridge, they were escorted by uh, Israeli troops carrying machine guns, you know, or automatic weapons, uh, as they walked around what they call the Temple Mount, the noble sanctuary, as it's known um, um, by Muslim people. And uh, but they but they did this. So here you have you know that one day they're routing them out. Another day they're shutting them in, and then they say, oh, they had rocks and fireworks. Yeah, well, the Israeli army had automatic weapons and rubber bullets and, you know, tear gas grenades and everything that you can imagine. It wasn't like that they were about to be, you know, they, that they were, they were under, uh, under danger, they were facing danger. No, and, and, and so we have, you know, the, this goes on and on and on along the line of what we've talked about before If the the misrepresentation of what's really happening in the in the ma- mainstream media. Okay, and that's a good place. W- we can end with this final question: um, the will, you know, what will it take to break the silence? It's amazing. The current democratic government has essentially given uh, the Netanyahu and the, uh, are they alleged criminals? Some of them have been convicted over and over again. Oh, yeah. Netanyahu has been running, running from one crime. And these are, some of these people are convicts. Uh, but uh, the Biden people, it's it's like, you know, we, we wish you wouldn't be so mean to those Palestinians. Yeah, and, and, you know, we have uh, Ben Gavir who, until he ran for office in 2019, uh, had the picture of Baruch Goldstein, the mass murderer of 29 Palestinians, wounded 120 in the Mosque of Ibrahim uh, back in the 1990s. He was his hero. He is his hero. He still is his hero, but he said he grudgingly took down the photo because he was going to run for office. The big, I think the big question right now is the, the movement against what the government, what the Israeli government is doing, up until now, and it's a massive movement against the judicial overhaul and attacks on democratic rights for the for the Israelis. That movement has so far mainly excluded the Palestinian issue. I don't think they can succeed unless there's a, 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 a some some way of finding unity and defending the Palestinian cause and and calling for what really needs to be called for if there's going to be any justice and you know that one state for one pe- for for, uh, for everyone with equal rights uh is that going to happen i don't know if it's going to happen i don't see any sign of it happening so far but i don't think that you can really talk about democracy when you still live under an apartheid system and defend the democratic rights while you maintain that system yeah well, 
really appreciate uh, Dick Becker, you taking the time out uh, to speak with us and uh, talk about an issue that is, we believe, one of the most censored uh, issues of our time. And um, we didn't even get into the fact that, uh, and we, I have to spend the program on this, that Israel is, it's amazing, they, they are a nuclear renegade. International uh, Atomic Associations, all kinds of regulators, they don't get to Israel because, according to the United States, and they don't have any nukes in there, right? There's no... Yeah. They, no yeah. Uh, nobody's on the record there. Right. They, they, it's a no-comment kind of thing. You know, we won't... You know, don't ask, don't tell kind of thing about it, that they maintain this fiction that Israel doesn't have hundreds of nuclear weapons, and of course it does. It's amazing. All right. Thank you, and for all the Can great just, work that Answer does. We yes, please. Yes, yes. Uh, let me just mention, if people want to uh, see our, our ongoing coverage um, yep. uh, and the articles I'm writing, liberationnews.org. One long word, liberationnews.org. LiberationNews.org. That's Mr. Richard Becker. He's a wonderful activist, journalist, uh, thinks a great deal about war and peace. And we thank you for uh, joining us, Dick. We appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Dennis. I, I appreciate it. All right. Be safe. You're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. We're going to take a nice long break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the battle for the right to abort. You know what's going on in this country. Stay with us. Uh, Davachka, 
empty vessels on flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. This is your daily investigative news magazine. We're here for you every weekday from 5 to 6 over the Pacifica Radio Network. We turn our attention uh, for a woman's right, a person's right to choose. Uh, we're talking about uh, the right-wing courts trying to put an end uh, to the right to have an abortion. Joining us to talk about this crucial issue, it's amazing we are here again, is the Narrell, uh, the Narrell Pro-Choice California Director, Shannon Oliveri Hovis. Uh, and uh, we welcome you to Flashpoints. We sort of have... Uh, dueling decisions now in terms of what's coming out of Texas and then uh, the response. Maybe, uh, uh, Shannon Oliveri, you can uh, bring us up to speed, remind people what these two decisions are, how they conflict with each other, and then let's talk about what the struggle might look like to defend uh, the right to have an abortion. Sure. Thanks for having me. So essentially on Friday... Thank you. Um, on Friday, really within minutes of each other, two opposing rulings came down. Um, one in Texas, which is trying to put mifepristone, one of the two medications used in a medication abortion, completely out of reach um, all across the United States, even in states like California. That ruling came down uh, essentially telling the FDA that it will have to withdraw its approval of mifepristone. Mifepristone has been FDA-approved for more than 20 years, uh, is safer than Tylenol, and has just an extensive safety and effectiveness record for being used in medication abortion and miscarriage management in this country. Well, about, like I said, I mean, literally just minutes apart, an opposing ruling came out of the state of Washington, which essentially tells the FDA that it can do nothing as it relates to mifepristone, that it cannot change its approval, um, that it needs to continue to maintain access in the same way that it has most recently, uh, where they've actually loosened restrictions on the medication because, frankly, it had it, it, it is a medication for abortion care, and it had restrictions that were unnecessary, medically speaking, and just didn't align with uh, the clinical research on this. And so one of them was a requirement to be used within a clinic setting rather than being uh, something that could be taken, you know, dispensed by pharmacies and taken in the safety of one's own home. We know that that is totally safe for mifepristone. So the FDA recently loosened that regulation to ensure that people can access it through a pharmacy and then take it at home. And so on the one hand, you have a court telling the FDA, you have to withdraw approval altogether. On the other hand, you have another court telling the FDA, you can't do anything. You have to maintain access as it is now. Uh, so that's what we're shaping up for is a battle in the courts on this very issue. Uh, has there ever been um, this kind of interceding in terms of uh, the, the process by which a drug is uh, confirmed as being okay uh, in this case for, what is it, 22 years? Uh, and then to be uh, pulled back in by a judge as opposed to um, a medical expert or a scientist. Is this, this is unique, huh? It, it is absolutely unique, and I think a really important point. Never in our history has a court told the FDA that they have to withdraw approval of 
an FDA-approved medication. And there's good reason for that, right? Uh, the FDA is supposed to be insulated from these kind of political maneuverings. And, you know, anti-choice folks, they judge-shopped this, uh, this case that they put before Judge Kaczmarek uh, in Texas, in Amarillo, Amarillo Texas. They judge-shopped him because he's Trump-appointed. He's uh, well-known for being extremely anti-choice, anti-LGBTQ, anti-a lot of things. Uh, and so they went to him specifically knowing that he would side with them in this case. So while it's not surprising, it is uh, what he has ruled. It is unprecedented and could set up a really um, a alarming precedent as it relates to what courts can do as far as intervening with the FDA on any medication that they've approved. And so I think people should be alarmed not just for the implications as it relates to access to medication abortion, which, of course, is, is a huge issue, but also as it relates to what the consequences could be uh, for any kind of medication that the FDA has approved. Listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio, we're speaking with Shannon Oliveri Hovis. She is a pro-choice uh, California director uh, with NARAL, uh, and uh, we're talking about the battle for the right to get an abortion, uh, the right to choose. Really, now, I, I, I've been sort of watching this movement for a long time, Shannon. I, I actually wrote a book about Henry Hyde. It was called Henry Hyde's Moral Universe. Uh, and uh, in that book, I researched what he was up to, the kinds of people who were a part of that initial uh, anti-abortion movement. And we, of course, we remember the killing, the literally targeting and assassinating of uh, pro-choice doctors. This is an extremely dangerous and volatile movement. Uh, uh, Trump opened a certain kind of door here, uh, and I think that's where we're standing. You want to give us your sense of um, the dangers that we face now and the kind of violence that is unleashed with with these kind of freeing up of certain the you know the restraining of the ability to have an abortion and then the ability for people to sort of you know carry forth with suits uh, to you prosecute whoever has anything to do with helping a woman who is desperately in need of having an abortion. Right. I mean, I think it's a really, it's a really important point. So uh, the anti-choice minority, they are very vocal, um, but they are very, very small minority in this country. Eight in 10 Americans support the legal right to abortion. The vast, vast majority of people did not want to see Roe v. Wade overturned. And even in our reddest of red states, bans on abortion are unpopular. And so what's happening now really flies in the face of public opinion. And it is Donald Trump that was able to give this anti-choice minority the crown jewel, which is a 6-3 anti-choice majority on the Supreme Court. But we are also, of course, right now seeing the consequences of the fact that he was able to take over many parts of the judiciary and appoint anti-choice judges across the judiciary at all levels uh and so that's that's where they are taking their activism now they can't win elections i mean we just last week in wisconsin we had judge janet win overwhelmingly uh because of her ability to protect access access to abortion care to reinstate access to abortion care 
state of Wisconsin. And so they're looking at this rigged ju- judicial system as their avenue to create these kind of backdoor abortion bans. And this is their intention. It is to put abortion care out of reach all everywhere, everywhere, even in states like California that have passed these constitutional protections to to enshrine the right to abortion uh, in our state. Wow. Well, uh, talk a little bit about uh, you work uh, with Nero and they're very much an activist group. And uh, I know that you all are mobilized. Maybe you could talk a little bit about the the special role that California can play both as a large state and as a pro-choice state uh, solidly in that category. Are we are we going to be sort of the you know, the the trenches, is California going to have to play a special role here? Absolutely. I mean, honestly, I will say that the California's role in the fight for reproductive freedom has truly never been more important than in this moment. Um, and I, I don't say that in any way to be hyperbolic. I, I absolutely 100% mean that. And that's for a number of reasons. One is California has, even before the fall of Roe, California played an outsized role in ensuring that folks could access abortion care all across this country. It's a shocking statistic, but before Roe v. Wade fell, one in four healthcare facilities that provided abortion care in the entire country resided in California. So you can imagine, 25%, you can imagine how that proportion is only increasing as clinics all across the country are forced to stop providing abortion care or forced to shutter altogether. I mean, we currently have 18 states in this country that are enforcing total or very restrictive bans on abortion care. And on the flip of that, you have California, which we are a self-designated reproductive freedom state. Governor Newsom recently led 21 governors to create the Reproductive Freedom Alliance, an alliance of Democratic governors who are fighting to protect and expand access to reproductive health care and abortion care in their states, you know, and doing things like what the governor said earlier today, which is we are ensuring that we have enough mesoprostol, the second medication that's used in a medication abortion, which can be used on its own to provide medication abortion, ensuring that we have enough of that here so that medication abortion does not, uh, is not put out of reach in the state of California. People continue to have undisrupted access to medication abortion here, regardless of the outcome in this case. You know, California, NARAL is one of the steering committee members, founding and steering committee members for the California Future of Abortion Council. And last year we ran a historic, uh, the most comprehensive package, bill package, expanding and protecting access to abortion care in the country. And this year, I mean, we're back at it. Just a couple of weeks ago, we announced with the Legislative Women's Caucus a bill package of 17 bills to continue to expand provider protections, patient privacy, make sure that people can safely get care here and that our providers are able to safely provide care elsewhere, sort of regardless of the patient's location. And so we really are the tip of the spear in so many ways. And NARAL is a huge part of that. You want to talk a little bit about the, I mean, uh, at at its core, this anti-abortion movement is really uh, anti-women uh, and anti the empowerment of women. Uh, and 
we, this comes up, you know, we see this flaring up. Uh, usually, it's, you know, it's quickly covered up by other fake issues. But th this is, at the very core, this is a sort of a, uh, I don't know what, woman-hating, certainly uh, a terribly anti-woman movement meant to restrain women from being free, from being able to uh, have the right to do whatever uh, they can do in this world. This is really about, at its very core, against standing against uh, women's liberation, right? Oh, absolutely. Uh, of course, when, when women and people who can become pregnant cannot control their fertility, then we are unable to be full and equal members of society. Uh, I'm 34 weeks pregnant right now. I am very mindful of the fact that without excess birth control, without the ability to terminate a pregnancy, without the ability to make personal decisions about our reproductive lives and futures, we do not have the ability to be in society the way we might want to be, to get the education we want, to pursue the careers we want, and all of these things. It is, of course, it makes sense that the our reproductive freedom you know which really started in this country in meaningful ways in the 60s and then 70s these coincided with women's equality movements and so these things are completely linked and the anti-choice folks they are putting forth you know a vision of dra dragging us back into 1950s and before where you know women belong in the kitchen and we have a role in society that is not equal to men. You know, but I also want to emphasize that we must acknowledge that this is, of course, it's about power and control of women, but it's in particular power and control of low-income women, of women of color. And also, I don't want to ignore that these attacks on women are going hand-in-hand hand with the attacks that we're seeing on the LGBTQ community and on trans folks. The same anti-choice extremists who are passing bans on abortion, you know, in Tennessee and, and Florida and all over the place, they're the same folks that are passing anti-trans legislation and attacking trans children, uh, you know, disallowing them from accessing gender-affirming care in their state. It's, it, these are the same people, and we need to see these attacks as coordinated uh, and really one in the same. Right. And just to uh, draw a red line under uh, folks with less money, low-income folks, are, as usual, going to be more dramatically impacted in a much more dangerous way. And it, it, it really does seem that if the script is not flipped here, if there isn't uh, some serious effective action by NARAL and others, um, this could get... This could get us back to the day where backroom abortions are the thing uh, and more and more women will die uh, because of them. I, I guess, do you think there's a special role that men should be playing in this resistance uh, uh, to the, the loss of their right to abort? Uh, what's, what should men be doing now? Because, you know, they sort of just hang back, uh, you know, it's too bad and all that, but we don't we don't have to have the babies if, if that's what happens. We don't have to deal with what happens if we don't want the baby. Well, I think there are a few things I would comment on. One is, you know, we have this 
We have this imagery that's associated with a pre-Row America. And that imagery actually is not apropos to a post-Row America. And what I mean by that is we have had so many medical advances. We now have the advent of the Internet. The Internet has changed the ballgame entirely. And so, you know, even if this Texas judge, Judge Kuzmerich, is able to put mifepristone uh, in particular out of reach for a period of time, people are still going to be able to go online and find ways to order medication abortion, including both pills, methoprostone and mesoprostol, to their homes. That is going to be something that happens. And so the thing we need to be more worried about is the fact that anti-trace extremists are trying to criminalize women for accessing abortion care. They're trying to criminalize pregnant yes. people. They are willing to put them behind bars or even threaten to charge them with the death penalty and other things for accessing abortion care. But the, the imagery that really is associated with a pre-row world is not, actually the, is not actually what we need to be concerned about at this point in history. I hope that, that makes sense. Uh, and then to your oh, point about, yeah. to your, to your point on, about the role of men, um, we must understand that these bans on abortion, these attacks on reproductive freedom, they are tearing apart families. It is so unsafe to be a pregnant person in a state that has passed a ban on abortion. And we're seeing these horrific stories come out that are unfortunately not super surprising, where people are unable to get emergency care for ectopic pregnancies, which are never viable. They're unable to access uh, miscarriage management because, of course, the same treatment for a miscarriage is the same thing that you use to induce an abortion. And doctors are terrified about legal repercussions if they perform necessary, even emergency care. You know, we hear these stories that are happening, coming out every single day. The, the Texas case that was filed where five women said that their ban on abortion could have killed those women. They had non-viable pregnancies and they couldn't get the essential health care that they needed. I mean, these things are truly tearing apart families. And like I said, I'm, I'm 34 weeks pregnant, so I think frequently about how terrified I would feel if I lived in a state that had enacted uh, a ban on abortion for fear that even with a, a very much wanted pregnancy that I hope will you know, come to fruition, if something went wrong, I would be unable to get the care that I needed. That's really the the universe that these anti-trace extremists are putting us into in this country. And so when I think about the role that all people have, regardless of whether you're a woman, regardless of whether you're of reproductive age, regardless of, you know, any set of circumstances, whether you ever plan to have children or not, you should be you know, on the front lines on this issue because this is truly impacting and tearing apart families everywhere. Is I bet you there's more than three, but is, are, are there three things you can think of uh, that you would like people to do as soon as they uh, we finish this interview? I mean, I, I suppose the first is become a NARAL member. Uh, NARAL is, <laughs> we have four million members all across this country. As you indicated at the outset, you know, we are an activist organization and we organize and mobilize members everywhere to really make a difference on the issues of reproductive freedom. Whether that's here in California, continuing to ensure that we are leading the charge and passing that 17 bill package that I mentioned, 
or doing the work like in Nevada where we're, we're putting forward a constitutional amendment to enshrine the right to abortion care in their state constitution, you know, or like the work we just did in Wisconsin last week to help ensure that Judge Janet was elected. Uh, the first thing I would say is join NARAL. The second thing I would say is, you know, this is not the time to get disheartened to where you sit on the sidelines. This is actually, this is the time to be louder and more active than you have ever been on this issue. And the important thing to remember is that, yes, we are in a severe era of backlash, but public opinion is so, so extraordinarily on our side on this issue. Eight in 10 Americans support the legal right to abortion. We cannot say that enough. And we need to be loud and clear that we represent the eight and 10 Americans, that we will not stand for this. And things will start to swing back. I know it feels disheartening right now, but things will start to swing back because people, the people of this country uh, support what you do. They support access to reproductive freedom. How do people get in touch with NARAL if they want to take your advice or learn more about what you all are doing? And maybe where else might you recommend people get information? So it's really easy to find NARAL, period. Uh, just search for us, N-A-R-A-L, online. Uh, if you want to look up California in general, we're prochoicecalifornia.org. And we're also uh, at prochoice across all of our social media channels so follow us um, we're very active and you can find out all the different things that we're up to but that's the best way to just look us up check us out and it's easy to sign up to get involved thank you well we appreciate the incredibly important information we wish you the best of luck on your pregnancy uh, and um, uh, we're uh, rooting uh, for the pro-choice that's for sure uh, we believe in choice at all levels thanks for being with us uh, today on flashpoint stay safe okay thanks so much for having me yeah, pleasure you're listening to flashpoints on pacifica radio my name is dennis bernstein this is your daily investigative news magazine we call it flashpoints and we're proud to be over pacifica the people's radio network kpfa here in the Bay Area. Thanks for listening. And that wraps it up for another episode of Flashpoints. Our executive producer is Dennis Bernstein. Senior producers are Miguel Gavilan Molina and Kevin Pina. Technical director is Mike Biggs. For previous episodes, go to kpfa.org or flashpoints.net. For questions or comments, email dennis at kpfa.org. Thank you for listening.